How is it that we can be in the deepest despair and then turn around and soar into heights of great joy and bliss? Well, music holds some of the answer. Good evening. It's time to relax, contemplate the mystery, and fill up with wonder. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the 5 O'Clock Podcast. I'm Theral Timpson. The other day, I was driving down the road, and some music came over the radio that so moved me, I had to pull over. I was completely overcome. This has only happened to me two or three times in my life. The music was Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto. What was going on? I'd heard the piece before, even live a few times. For some reason, in this moment, on this day, this piece struck me with such a force and moved me with a profound joy that I sat there in my car reevaluating my entire life. How does music do this? What was going on in Tchaikovsky's life that produced such music? Was this the result of a composer waking up in the morning, sitting with his tea at his composition desk, moving notes about? It turned out, no. There was a story. At the time Tchaikovsky wrote the music, he was 37 years old and he had just got married. Did you know Tchaikovsky was married? For about three weeks. He was 37 and just hitting the prime of his career and getting terribly afraid that it would all dissolve into thin air if it got around that he was sleeping with men. Of course, it had got around, but that was exactly the trouble. Tchaikovsky thought marriage was the answer. Put an end to the rumors, make himself respectable. His friends begged him not to, but when a young woman wrote to him confessing her love, he jumped at the chance. Now, in his favor, we have to say that he did make an agreement with her. He told her that he was too old to be ardent anymore. Ardent. That theirs would be a quiet relationship, more like a brother and a sister. This was over lunch three days after he got her letter. Are you suggesting marriage, she asked breathlessly. Yes, the celebrity composer conceded. In three weeks, they were married. After three weeks more, Tchaikovsky, in what he felt was being true to his intentions, had still not consummated the marriage, but it was driving his young wife mad. She had heard him, but she had still expected something. When she came passionately on to him, he fled the house. Then, with a former male student of his from the conservatory, he also fled the country, going to Switzerland. That's where he wrote one of the most beautiful exclamations of joy and expressions of love in musical language of all time. Let me play some for you. This is violinist Itzhak Perlman with the Philadelphia Orchestra, conducted by Eugene Ormandy. And we start here with the violin's first solo right at the beginning.
joining us today to share his enthusiasm for Tchaikovsky, for this story, and for this concerto is Robert Greenberg. He's a prolific composer in his own right and a music historian whom I first encountered in the audiobook section of the Los Angeles Public Library. His great courses series are legendary. I've been listening to them for 20 years, and now I read his blog every Monday called Dr. Bob Prescribes, which I highly prescribe for everyone else. He's been a professor at the San Francisco Conservatory and UC Berkeley, and is a fixture of the music scene in the Bay Area. Welcome to 5 O'Clock. Thank you so much, Thero. So I know you've blogged about this very story, Tchaikovsky running away from his marriage from the, and then writing the violin concerto. And I, I think I've given perhaps the popular version, and I know you're going to have a more scholarly version. But whatever version it is, uh, well, composers have, are not wimps. I have a seedier version. Oh, okay, the seedier. Oh, yeah, much seedier. I, I, would, I wouldn't call it uh, terribly academic, but you were right to point out that he was terrified that his homosexuality would become known. We must remember that he was living in Tsarist Russia, which is perhaps, you know, among the most homophobic places in the history of the world. And, you know, if if he did indeed kill himself, Tchaikovsky, uh, because he was afraid of being revealed, and there's a lot of people who believe that he did commit suicide because of that, the great tragedy is that you were right to point out everyone knew he was gay, but he was a national treasure. And no one would have lifted a hand against him. It was his own fear and self-loathing that did him in. And he was filled with all sorts of fears and phobias. He was a, he was a quirky guy. So yes, uh, the, the name of the young lady that you were referring to was Antonina Milyakova. She was a little crazy. In fact, she was very crazy. Hmm. She had apparently taken some classes at the conservatory in Moscow where Tchaikovsky taught. He never noticed her. He didn't even know she existed until he received this love letter from her um, in, 19, in uh, 1877, in the, I guess, the, the winter or early spring of 1877. And um, yeah, he glommed onto her just the way you said he did. She, of course, picked up none of what he was talking about. Uh, she wouldn't have known a homosexual from an elm tree. <laughs> it was a disaster. His brother, Modeste, who was also gay, uh, just just begged, begged Peter not to get involved, but he did. Uh, the wedding itself was a disaster. Tchaikovsky wrote about it later. Uh, he had a panic attack during the ceremony. He fled immediately after the ceremony. So he was not at his own wedding reception. Uh, reception. Poor Antonina had to do it all by herself. She, uh, she got herself her little trousseau. She had her, her negligees and such, and it drove Tchaikovsky absolutely nuts. Of course, what ultimately drove him even crazier was it turned out she didn't know any of his music. And he used that as the excuse for trying to kill himself three weeks into the marriage. Uh, the methodology of his attempted suicide then was rather funny. He walked into the Moscow River, hoping that the cold water would induce pneumonia. But of course, all it did mm. was wet his clothing. Uh, his brothers, uh, his brother Modeste and his friends spirited him after three months. Uh, the wedding was over. The marriage was over after three weeks, as, as you say. But, uh, but the, he still hung around. It took off three months later. And now he also had one opportunity that the rest of us would, would give little toes for. 
even as this this terrible tragedy with this young and by the way the literature refers to her as a nymphomaniac now i don't know if she was but if she was then that would have made poor tchaikovsky even crazier because Mm -hmm. of course Mm -hmm. he had been gay from the first moment of his life at the same time this was happening tchaikovsky was beginning a uh, a correspondence with a very very wealthy widow named Nadezhda von Meck, who came into her money when her husband died. He had been a railroad magnate. Von Meck loved Tchaikovsky's music beyond all things. And basically, all she wanted from Tchaikovsky was a correspondence. In exchange for a daily correspondence, she was willing to support him in whatever lifestyle he wanted. And this, the negotiations for this were going on at exactly the time of this marriage, about which Nadezhda was very unhappy. That that patronage actually started right then. It started right then, and mm. it started when he walked away from Antonina Milyakova. So, you know, there were a lot of good reasons for Tchaikovsky to vamoose. Yeah. And one of them was uh, Von Meck. Yeah. The reason why he was able to take his entourage to Clarence on Lake Geneva in Switzerland uh, in February of 1878 was because he didn't have to teach anymore. He was able to resign his position at the conservatory in Moscow. Thanks to von Meck, he was able to take a suite at a beautiful hotel, order up caviar and champagne and live like a prince almost for the rest of his life. Thanks to this Nadezhda von Meck. So 1878, 77, 78, these were... (laughs) These were big years in Tchaikovsky's life. I, I, I've framed it here as the story of turning adversity and failure into triumph. <laughs> in the end, he comes out with this beautiful gold right. Right, that he created from it. Um, and this is the paradigm that the artist gives us time after time, right? I mean, the artist comes out with their piece, and it's wonderful. We need it. We live on it. Uh, so do you believe it? That out of adversity comes music like this? Yeah. I think that his whole life was adverse. And what many composers do, what many artists do, uh, is that they they draw on their own experience. In fact, they force themselves almost to be unhappy, to live at an extreme emotional pace or state, because it translates. I mean, think about your favorite authors. They, they live at the edge. They have to. They live at an experiential edge, because without it, what supplies the grist for their imagination. Beethoven was the most vexatious person in the world. He just would not stop ever. But of course, that's what he drew on when he composed. Every now and then someone seems calm. Bach seems to have been calm. Yeah. Um, Dvorak. Bach seems to use music um, to, to find the peace. Right? Correct, in a, in a spiritual way. Uh, yeah. but, but certainly Tchaikovsky lived at the edge of emotional experience all the time, right now with this piece, um, we, we don't hear all that pain. And I mean, I mean, I'm okay. So one would argue maybe that you did, but it does seem a very sunny piece, especially. For it him. is, and he's he's not writing about himself. You know, he every now and then he did. Uh, his fifth symphony is about him. Yeah. It's about his uh, homosexuality. Hmm. But you know, that's the other thing. I mean, you know, Hemingway didn't write autobiography. He wrote about other people and his insights into into other people and other experiences were generated from his own life. 
but those pieces, those books were not about him. And I would say the same thing about most composers and most artists. You know, they're not necessarily biographical, but it's their life experience that allows them to inform the art with the depth with which they do. In the case of this piece, well, we've got to remember, too, Tchaikovsky's greatest musical loves. His greatest musical loves uh, were, first, the music of Wolfgang Mozart, um, the human voice, the beauty of the human voice, a French ballet, very much so, and the grace associated with the world of dance. And we hear all of that in this concerto, these glorious melodies. Mm. I walked with Mozart, Tchaikovsky is arguably, and maybe George Gershwin, the greatest melodist ever to pick up a pencil. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're talking about what makes the, this concerto so great now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, 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 the violin doesn't play, it sings. It's, yeah. it's, it's virtually an operatic soprano, a coloratura soprano. That is a soprano capable of the most magnificent gymnastics. Let, and, uh, let, let's play just a little bit more of the piece there. just go on listening this concerto really it, it just it cuts right to the heart of who he was musically glorious melody operatic degree of, uh, of virtuosity in, in a voice-like instrument the violin and grace pure magnificent grace balletic grace hmm. so if this piece is autobiographical it's about the things he loved most in the world do we let artists off the hook? Um, do artists get a free pass that the rest of us don't? And here's what I mean. Um, anyone else who ran off and left a young wife would be called an ass. But, well, but he generates this piece that's just, you know, we listen to it, it's just so redeeming. You know, you have to know something about Tchaikovsky and the mistake he made in marrying her. And you have to know something about Antonina Milyakova, who was crazy uh, she ended her life in an insane asylum. I mean, when I say she was crazy, I, I, I mean that. Okay. He, he supported her uh, to the day he died and left her money in his will so that she would always be supported. He just made a mistake, a terrible, terrible mistake. And uh, it's one that she never even understands. She kept, for the rest of her life, she would talk about my Peter. They never divorced. Um, they never annulled their marriage, despite the fact that it was never consummated. 
So we're talking about two very strange people here. Do we let composers off the hook? Do we let artists off the hook? I think once they're dead, we generally do. Um, You know, uh, it's an old argument. Should we listen to Wagner's music because he was an anti-Semitic racist bastard? Well, I'm not going to deny myself Wagner's music dramas just because of that. Now, if he were alive today and my fanship of him helped his life or, or, or in any way increased his income, I wouldn't do it. But once someone's dead, mm. I, I don't mind celebrating that person because they can't profit from it. Oh, that's and an I, interesting distinction. Yeah, I this mean, is the, yeah. this is my distinction, right? Right. I mean, once they're dead, uh, there is no letting off the hook. They're not around. I mean, there's right. no such thing as letting them off the hook, really. Right. 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 So, I, but I if mean, they're if they're alive, I that's when I don't let them off the hook. If you're a jerk around me, and I've had some experiences with some very famous musicians. By the way, most musicians are wonderful. They're just like everybody else. We read the same newspapers, and we have the same problems with the cable company and 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 the bank and contractors as everybody else. But every now and then, I have met someone who was a certifiable jerk, and um, I won't patronize those people. Um, until they're dead. And once they're dead, fine. I'll speak well of them. You would know. I mean, you've you've known a lot of musicians in your time. Um, are there Tchaikovsky's around today? I mean, you know, this it, is a, yeah. Oh, okay, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. You go well, ahead. I was going to say, now that we have gay marriage and, um, I don't know, pop music, I mean, was he... <laughs> you talked about the angst and living right on the edge and, and all this drama created this music. Uh, do we have all that drama creating a Tchaikovsky today. <laughs> oh, there's there's so many other ways to create drama in our world today. <laughs> okay. For example, all we need to do is look at the newspaper. <laughs> if you'll excuse me, I, I'm not going to get off on too much of a riff there. Uh-huh. But um, listen, angst is universal. What newspaper? <laughs> what newspapers, right. The ones we burn before we can bring them in the house. <laughs> okay. Uh, where, where there's human beings, there's misery. We'll always find some way to make ourselves unhappy, some way to doubt ourselves, some way to loathe ourselves. Uh, there'll, there'll never be a lack of emotion That's uh, for any in. of us. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this theme that, that uh, we started out with then of, of, uh, of despair um, uh, to joy um, is built in then. Well, and, and again, certain composers, for example, I just mentioned Beethoven. He wrote his most joyful music when he was most despairing. His second symphony was composed at a time that he was actually considering suicide. His eighth symphony, same thing. And those are, those are some of the lightest. The, correct. Right? Because, because you know what? For Beethoven to wallow in the darkness artistically while he was already emotionally in a bad place would have been simply too much. Hmm. When the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. He needed to raise his spirits. <laughs> and it's one of the ways he raised his spirits. I would say the same thing for Tchaikovsky. You know, while you're writing, while you're working on a piece of music, while you're writing a play or a book, you transcend the immediate. You transcend the everyday. You get into that zone. And that zone can be a very pleasant place to hide. And it could be a very wonderful place to escape. And certainly writing this violin concerto, uh, which, by the way, he did very quickly, it just it just popped on out. Uh, If he wasn't in good spirits at that point, the music would have put him there. And so it's a way that I think 
some people self-medicate. That is, they can write or create something that makes them happy where otherwise they wouldn't have been happy. To write a piece of music like this during a difficult period in one's life is not as uh, incredible as it might seem. Yeah, you see it as, uh, as, as a kind of just natural outcome, a natural step. Perhaps, perhaps, yeah. you know. Yeah. With Mozart, we still can't, everyone who thinks about it is still trying to figure out how a guy who in his last three, four years of life was sick all the time and suffering from the worst financial problems you can imagine and at the edge of bankruptcy all the time and then losing these children, five of his seven children died in infancy, one after the other after the other and yet he's writing the most brilliant, joyful, engaging, fantastic music there would seem to be virtually no connection between Mozart's inner life and his artistic life and his outer external daily life. Because here he was creating an entire universe, an entire world, a better world in his music at the time that he was suffering deeply. So often there's no correlation whatsoever. You know, I've listened to you talk about music I mentioned in the beginning. Um, you, you give a lot of lectures at the beginning of concerts, and I first heard you on a great courses series talking about Beethoven sonatas. You mentioned Beethoven, uh, and you came through. Uh, you came right over the microphone into my car, um, just like you're doing today. Oh, how uh, nice. I, I was right there with you and with Beethoven. You have the special ability to talk about music um, I really feel super lucky to have you here. It's not easy to talk about music. No, um, it's not. Uh, to bring it alive, I mean, you, you right away said, I'll give you the seedy side. Um, <laughs> because if you go that academic route, I mean, it just kind of, uh, it, it just falls off. Um, but, you know, Wagner said writing about music is like dancing about architecture. And yet you do it. Uh, why? How? By by not doing what I was taught to do. It's so interesting. <laughs> right. I, listen, you mean by not talking about all the chord changes and this is a, a right, five chord right. and a one chord and a right. second you know, inversion? There's a place for all of that. But I'm fascinated by people. I'm not just fascinated by music. But music doesn't make itself. People make music. Personalities make music. And so I want to know why someone chose this note and not that note. And for me to understand that, it's not enough just to look at the music. I need to look at the person, the place the person was living in, the emotional place that person was occupying at the time the piece was composed. I've got to know everything because a piece of art is a holistic creation. It's not just part of an artist that makes it. It's everything having to do with that person's life at that time. Now, when I mm -hmm. said this is not what I was taught to do, I meant it. When I was uh, at the university back in the 70s, um, this was the time of what was called the new criticism, this post-war modernist movement that said all art should be considered only unto itself, analyzed with a vocabulary created that applies only to it, mm -hmm. and everything else is extraneous. The, the creator, the times, the environment, extraneous, waste of time. And so we weren't allowed to use words like sonata form or minuet and trio. Hmm. We weren't allowed to use terms 
that were not unique to a given piece. It's like trying to teach anatomy and not being allowed to use the word head and chest and lungs. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Because that was seen as a um, uh, form, was seen as sort of uh, historical or extraneous, um, and you should just talk about what was, what was in the piece. Precisely. Now, were you trained then as a, as a music uh, historian or, or ethno, ethnologist? No, I was trained as a composer. And my PhD is in composition. Okay. And uh, and I started teaching music history as a uh, as a way of staying in the Bay Area. I came here from New Jersey. God bless me. Mm. Um, and within about three days of being in the Bay Area, I came out here for grad school in '78. Within just a few days, I'd been teaching high school in New Jersey, so I'd, I I was an older student. Within three days, I said, "I'm not leaving. I'm home." Mm. And I got my PhD at UC Berkeley, and I said, I'm not leaving. I'm home. So I didn't enter the academic rat race. But instead, I started teaching adult education courses at the conservatory at UC Berkeley. And from there, I started teaching in people's homes. Then the Wall Street Journal profiled me because the Wall Street Journal found out that these high-end business leaders are taking music appreciation from this guy in San Francisco. Hmm. And the journal article led to this, led to the teaching company, led to the conservatory. And so I've made my living teaching music initially to illiterate, musically illiterate adults, intelligent people, but people who couldn't read music. So I had to come up with a vocabulary. Mm -hmm. I had to come up with a methodology. I had to come up with written materials that wouldn't use notation, that wouldn't use music theory, Mm -hmm. but would still allow me to show someone what's going on in a piece of music. Yeah. And so that's that's how I got into this whole music history thing, and that and that's why my shtick is different. I, uh, you I were can, you were forced to talk to sort of outsiders or, or um, lay people, correct, um, and, and translate. Yeah, but what I found out very quickly is that a fifty-year-old understands Mahler in a way that a twenty-five-year-old grad student in music can't. Hmm. Because a- you mean any fifty-year-old? Uh, most fifty-year-olds. Most fifty. Okay. Most 50 because years. because life experience does count. It does matter. Yeah. Until you've been hurt. Yeah. Until you've questioned yourself. Until you've had tragedy in your life. You can't understand Mahler's Fifth Symphony, for example, which is about our conscious and unconscious responses to death. What can you tell a, a, a child? And a 20-year-old child about this. I don't care how good a pianist you are at 20. What can you tell an undergraduate music major about Mahler's Fifth? It doesn't mean anything to them. And so what I found out was that adults understand so much and they understand it so quickly. You just have to come up with a vocabulary that allows them in. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, you have to just uh, connect with them and their experience. And they're not vying for a grade. (laughs) That's the other thing about academia. Uh You know, it always comes down to the same thing. I'm paying this much money in tuition, and I deserve an A. Hmm. Yeah. No, you don't, you don't deserve an A. Yeah, so so I so agree with you here, and I've so agreed with you over over the years on this point. You know, so many people say, oh, I don't know how to appreciate classical music, and I just ag- disagree with this. I think everyone can appreciate, pretty much everyone can appreciate classical music. I, I first listened to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony as a nine-year-old, 
Um, I grew up in a small rural town that just didn't have any classical music around. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I remember when we first got our first television, literally, I mean, I was, I grew up in a religious cult. Um, and so, uh, I remember getting the first television at six years old, literally. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I must've got some classical music through that, but somehow I got a hold of a, of a record, uh, with Beethoven's fifth symphony on it. I put it on and I began conducting it immediately. Hmm. And so uh, I, I hadn't really, that I know of, I had not had exposure to classical music before then. And so I've always believed that anyone can have immediate access to classical music. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's, you know, the, let, would you allow me to play a brief game? It, it, this is a fun game and yeah. it, it, it helps. Okay. Because the repertoire, when we, say classical music. We're talking about a repertoire that stretches back to Johann Sebastian Bach. Okay, okay, fun, yeah. To the early 1700s. Yeah. Well, here's the game I play. My dad, God bless him, uh, he turned 92 years old in May of 2017, passed away later that year. Mm. But 92, that's it's a good lifetime. Some people are older, many are younger. But Yeah, my dad made it to 92. Okay, let's take three of my dad's lifetimes. And that's 276 years, okay? You're born, you die, someone's born, and so forth. So three of my dad's lifetimes, 276 years. 276 years ago, it was 1743. Bach was... Bach was... Bach was seven years before he died. He was 58 years old. He was working on the gold variations in uh, in Leipzig. Uh, In... What what did we say? We said 1743. 43. Okay, let's see. Um, Haydn and George Washington are both just 11 years old, and Washington is presumably chopping down cherry trees. In 43, uh, Mozart will not be born for another 13 years. In 43, 1743, Beethoven's mother had not been born yet. Three lifetimes. That's it. This music is very recent, hmm. and it was written by people just like us. To make this music accessible, all we have to do is make the composers accessible and understand a little bit of their world. The other thing is, you know, and this is something that drives me absolutely batty, and I'm sure we can talk about this endlessly. There are but voices out well, there are voices out there, and they're becoming louder and more strident, that would tell us that this music is nothing but a symbol of a phallocentric, patriarchic, European slave-holding culture mm. that has no place in our current society, forgetting, of course, that the founding fathers were all slave owners and so forth and so on. Mm. And uh, to which I would respond by saying that, <laughs> excuse us. The people who wrote the music were all working class or middle class people. The actual composers. All right, rich people commissioned it. Rich people always commission stuff. Who do you think commissions buildings and nice houses around here? Who do you think gives money to the art museums? There's always a wealthy class of people who will use that wealth, God bless them, to create something lasting in their memory. Do we want to throw out the music because it was commissioned by wealthy landowners? I mean, 
give me a break. This is some of the greatest art of all time. Should we mow down the Acropolis and with it the Parthenon because it was created by a wealthy Greek class? Shall we burn down the museums in Florence because it was financed? they were financed by the de' Medici's? I mean, really, enough is enough. Mm. Foolishness. Are we supposed to destroy every magnificent Catholic church because they were built with money extracted from poor people? No, we can't. We Mm. can't. We would would hamstring our humanity. To be honest, I really didn't know who this Beethoven guy was when I was was nine years old. And I found this record in my grandmother's closet and I put it on. And what I remember about it was that it was so compelling. I couldn't Mm. stop. It was the longest piece of music I'd ever heard. Right. (laughs) It went on and on. It had four movements for one piece. And um, and as I look back now, I remember it for its liberation. Liberation. It freed me. Mm. And with the Tchaikovsky piece, um, it came up for me the other day, and it came on the radio. And I'd heard this concerto before. I'd heard it live. You know, I'd heard it over the years. And it struck me so forcefully, I had to pull over. Wow. It, it was just... Amazing. And so I guess maybe let's finish up with the question. What is it about music like this that cuts through our lives, our everyday lives, and makes us stop what we're doing and contemplate the most profound? That's a big question. And different people will respond very differently. I happen to believe we are hardwired for music. It uses the same skill set that language uses. Uh, pitch, in time, our voices rise and fall as we attempt to make certain points. Some languages, uh, like Chinese, uh, both Mandarin and Cantonese, are actually musical languages. They have a span of about uh, six white notes on the piano. Mm-hmm. This is how we communicate. This is how we're hardwired to communicate. What music is, is an intensification of that process that I just described. Musical rhythm uh, corresponds with our heartbeat. We perceive music of moderate tempo based on our heart rate, which is usually between 60 and 80 beats per minute. Uh, Music can speed up our heart rate, can slow down our heart rate. We know that the drumming and marching uh, to music is a way of organizing activity, human activity. The musical impulse is is not a cultural impulse. It's it's a physical impulse. And I think what you heard in the Tchaikovsky, flaky as this might sound, is you actually heard Tchaikovsky talking to you. You heard his inner soul. You perceived a greater truth. Something larger than ourselves was opened up to you at that moment. And it's a marvelous thing, this this extraordinary response to music. And by the way, it's not limited to Tchaikovsky. It's not limited to the Beatles. It's, it's universal, and it spans virtually every kind of music. The beauty of this art music that you're talking about, the Tchaikovsky, is that, and here's the difference between a song and a concerto. A song is a singular musical idea that takes a certain amount of time to be sung. Uh, it's poetry set to music, but it's usually just a single theme. But a composition, like a concerto, is filled with multiple themes that then interact with each other. And interacting with each other, they become other themes. So it's uh, like comparing a very short story with a magnificent multi-volume novel. 
it's a, it's a, it's a more information rich experience, but this is something music is capable of. I mean, I, I trust we've all had the experience of hearing a, a song, maybe a rock and roll song that suddenly evokes some point of our youth, of our childhood, of, of our coming of sexual age. And for a moment, we smell the smells, feel the feelings that we felt at that time, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. It, it is an extraordinary art, and it's something we're wired to do. Robert Greenberg, composer, musicologist, speaker, extraordinary. You can find his courses and lectures at robertgreenbergmusic.com. There are many wonderful courses there. Uh, amazing courses where Robert talks like this about music. He gets right into the pieces. Uh, there's one on the Beethoven sonatas, which I'll never forget. One sonata after the other, talking about when Beethoven wrote them, getting right into the nuts and bolts of the pieces. On, but many on the great composers. I've listened to many of them. You won't find more passionate, riveting courses. Thank you, Bob. My great pleasure. Thank you, Bill. No. 